Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. This morning we're going to uh, continue on our study through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is uh, one of the most important sections of uh, an extended period of Jesus' teaching. So it, it carries a lot of weight and people love it, uh, believers and non-believers alike. It is very important in our lives. And it is in some ways a very transitional passage for us in understanding uh, the kingdom of God and God's plan and purpose for us through the Old Testament to the New Testament. And when we think of the Old Testament, we often think about laws and uh, the Ten Commandments and the other laws. There's 613 laws in total in the Old Testament. And in our section of Scripture today, Jesus talks about the law, the law and the prophets. And laws are important to us. We, we are impacted by laws. All of us have to follow laws. Laws are necessary. And as I was looking on the internet, I was thinking about laws in Missouri. And to come to find out, there are some kind of crazy laws in Missouri. Things I didn't know about, like, did you know that there is a law in the books forbidding hanging clothes on a clothesline in the city of Columbia? It, it actually says in the law that if you hang your clothes on the fence post, it's okay. But if you hang your clothes on clothesline, that is unacceptable. Uh, I don't know exactly where all these laws come from. There is a law in the state of Missouri that says it's illegal to drive with an uncaged bear. And I think, wow, that kind of makes sense, I think. I don't know. I wouldn't want to drive it. I wonder what's behind those laws. You know, you wonder. Um, another interesting law is in the city of Kansas City where children can buy shotguns, but it's forbidden that they buy toy cap guns. It sure is a disjunction somehow. I don't know. I'll probably flip those around somehow. Um, another law says that if you are under the age of 21 and you take out the trash... And there happens to be a, a, an alcoholic container that's empty in that trash. You can be arrested for illegal possession of alcohol. Uh, and I don't know. I know the state of Missouri is pretty serious about this. I did. I do know someone who went uh, worked for Walmart, went out to the shopping carts to bring in the shopping carts, brought in the shopping carts, and there was an empty alcohol container in the shopping cart. And they had to let them go. Uh, I mean, kind of serious about those kinds of things. Um, I also saw that Missouri has a law that's very similar to Wisconsin. And so it kind of perked my interest. And uh, it has to do with uh, it is illegal to buy margarine or butter substitutes. 
and the dairy, the dairy farmers were standing behind that law, and it was passed. I, I remember when in Wisconsin, that was a really big deal, Wisconsin, the dairy state, supposedly, uh, that they outlawed any butter substitutes, and there were these people going down to Illinois and filling up their trucks and smuggling margarine across the border. <laughs> it's kind of funny, I don't know. <laughs> um, there, is, uh, there is one city in Columbia... Purdy, Missouri, where dancing is absolutely outlawed. No dancing. I wonder if that includes square dancing. We've done square dancing here. It doesn't seem like quite the same thing. But um, Then there is this one law that I find really fascinating. It has a lot of history to it. It's an old law. It was written in 1838. It is called the Missouri Executive Order 44. Anybody heard of that? Missouri Executive Order 44? Somebody's heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was formed, it written in 1838. It came on the heels of the Battle of Crooked River where there was a clash that happened between Mormons and a unit of Missouri militia. The governor of Missouri, Boggs, in 1838 directed that Mormons be treated as enemies and exterminated or driven from the state. Now what's interesting about this is that it has been rescinded. It's been overturned. But that happened until 1976. At 19, 1976, Governor Kit Bond overturned the executive order and apologized to Mormons for this action. Uh, somebody was asking, was it legal to kill Mormons from 1838 till 1976? I don't know. <laughs> but he rescinded that law. Now, laws sometimes are, they are very helpful. We appreciate laws. But sometimes laws are bad and they should be overturned. But when we look at our passage today, we make a serious mistake if we think Jesus is just wiping away or nullifying or abolishing the laws of the Old Testament. And so Jesus brings us to a point of understanding and learning about what Jesus is up to and how he relates to the Old Testament and to the laws of the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament, and it is essential. It's exciting. I, I hope you're excited as you think about this topic, and, and, and certainly I won't be able to bring out all the nuances of this topic, but I hope it is somewhat of a fascination and maybe even an ongoing study on your part of how is it that Jesus, being the Son of God, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, how does he fulfill those things? And then, how does it continue on? How is it that this is one big story? It is an amazing thing because I think that Jesus, in preaching the Sermon on the Mount, is in a sense setting out the charter for his kingdom. He is setting out the charter as he talked about the kinds of people he is bringing this good news to, this message of the kingdom to. When we looked at all the Beatitudes... And being poor in spirit, merciful, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, peacemaker, all those, those kinds of people, the kingdom is dawning on them. The kingdom is dawning on these people. The kingdom is dawning on us. 
as we are part of that. And then we talked about being salt and light. And the ramifications that we should have as we impact and make a, 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 make a demonstration, a picture of the kingdom of Christ in the society in which we live. So this is extremely important as we think about what Jesus is doing and how that impacts and affects the Old Testament and the New Testament, how we understand this. Because this becomes a building block for how to understand the rest of the sermon, which is, I think, the charter of the kingdom of Christ. So we want to read Matthew chapter 5. If you'll turn there. Matthew chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 17 through 20. And as I read this, I'll uh, conclude with this is the word of the Lord, and I'll ask you to respond, thanks be to God. Starting at verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus and the message that he gives us in this word. We pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to understand the, the broad scope of your revelation, your work of grace and salvation and kingdom life. Guide us as we study today. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage is very, very important in the totality of the Sermon on the Mount. We have, as we said, learned about the kind of people that Jesus is calling to himself as he pronounces this new kingdom. And he tells us something about his role in this unfolding salvation, this new kingdom that is being announced. And I would say that what we believe, what we see in Jesus is that he is the climax of that revelation. The one phrase that catches our attention that is so important is that he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. This should give us a warning to think about uh, not discarding the law, much like Governor Kit Bond did with the Executive Order 44. We must understand Jesus' meaning is that there is a continuation, uh, uh, an extension, uh, a new period in this unfolding plan of God's salvation that's culminating in Jesus, and it's not here 
to nullify or destroy or abolish everything that has gone before. This passage helps us understand key issues. That's why it plays such an important role because we might be asking ourselves like, what do we as Gentiles have to do with Jews? What's our relationship? How should we think about Jews and Gentiles? How should we think about the nation of Israel? Does that play any part? What is the relationship between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the new? Are they totally different? Do they overlap? Are they grow out of the same tree? What, what is happening? And this raises questions of continuity and discontinuity. Now, when I think about the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's the topic that gets me excited. And sometimes I have to be careful because passages that I'm really excited about... I assume that you guys are all on the same page with me and I say things and go off and you're wondering what I'm talking about. So I'm going to try to stick with what I have written here um, because this is such a wonderful passage. I mean, there is so much depth here. So when we think about this, how we answer this question, is Jesus' fulfillment of the old and we're transitioning into the new, we have to realize that Christians have been divided about that question. There are denominations formed around that question. This is no small text and no small topic. But I hope to stick with the text and help us learn and gather what Jesus is saying here because this is also an important launching pad to us understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm convinced. So as we give attention to what Jesus says, we must begin to see that Jesus says that he is fulfilling the law and the prophets, and this is fulfilling the Old Testament. And Jesus is describing this new way of life, this life that is to be lived according to love. According to the definition of the good news and the kingdom according to Jesus. And one of the fundamental statements that Jesus makes that really helps us understand this connection between the old and the new comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. A very familiar passage, I sure, I'm sure you know. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Notice the similar language, law and prophets. So we get three lessons that I want us to draw from this passage. First, number one, Jesus did not destroy or abolish the law or the prophets. Law and the prophets. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And now we live in light of this new good news that he brings. I've mentioned uh, a while back, it's been a while when I was preaching, that uh, I was diagnosed with diabetes a year, year and a half ago maybe. Two, I don't know. And this really did change things for me. And uh, like I can't, I've got to stay away from them uh, youth treats in the back of the room, though I've had a lot of difficulty this morning. Uh, but it also changes other things. It, it requires that I go see the eye doctor. 
and I, and I go to see Dr. Kramer, and you know, and, but as a diabetic, you go see the eye doctor. And when you go see the eye doctor, you have to do this regularly because diabetes can begin to break down things inside your eyes. And so they have to be checked to make sure that isn't happening. And uh, when I go to see Dr. Kramer, he puts this box in front of you, you know, and he tells you to read the, the list of letters. And, and then he's flipping lenses, you know, like, you know, like, put to the, uh, is that better or is that worse? Is that better or is that worse? And he continues doing that. And is that better? Is that? Sometimes I think he's just playing with me. And it's like, it's the same thing. Let me see. Does he think that's better? Does he think that's worse? I don't know. But, but you, I know that there's a process here, and what you're doing is you're narrowing down, you're understanding, you're looking, and you're seeing, and things are becoming into focus, and you get to where you can see clearly and read more letters. Well, this passage is very much like that. Because as we see the unfolding of the Old Testament and into the New, this is one of those unique places where Jesus is talking about how to look at the Old and to look at the New and understand how they come together and what's new in what Jesus has accomplished. So, elsewhere in the Bible, when we see the word fulfill, we need to begin to understand what it means and we're trying to put it together well one of the passages that helps us understand this comes from Luke chapter 24 verses 25 through 27 and it's another place where Jesus talks about the Old Testament and the New and what happens after his death and resurrection and and it was after he rose from the dead some of his disciples were disheartened and on the road to Emmaus, thinking that the one hope of the Savior Jesus that they had trusted in had been killed and the story was over. But Jesus is walking along with them and they didn't recognize him. And in verse 25 it says, He said to them, How foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I've often thought, wow, would that be a conversation where Jesus takes you through the whole Old Testament, tells you each and every point and place where he was fulfilling prophecy and all of those promises were culminating in what happened in Jesus Now, I don't think that those disciples actually at that time thought Jesus was abolishing the law. But, more probably, Jesus clarifies here in the Sermon on the Mount and on the road to Emmaus that he never intended to come and abolish the law and the prophets. But the reason he said that is probably just as a a warning or before things happened because it wasn't very long after the death and resurrection of Jesus that uh, people began to accuse the Christian church and and the apostles of abolishing Moses and abolishing law. Remember, uh, Paul was brought before the people of Israel, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. They wanted to stone him because he was throwing out Moses and the law. But... As we learn in this passage, it is very important for us as Christians to realize that Jesus, he came as a Jewish man. He came to follow the law, 
He came to read and uphold the prophets. And what he was doing was not abolishing anything, but was fulfilling, was making it count, was bringing it to its culmination. The text specifically says that he came to fulfill both the law and the prophets. Now, what does that mean? When we think of the Old Testament, we think of the law, the first five books, the prophets, the middle books, according to the Jewish Bible, and the writings. And so there are three divisions in the Old Testament. But Jesus refers to the law and the prophets. And I think he's just referring to the Old Testament, all the scriptures, the whole Bible. And what Jesus did when he came was to bring to completion, to fulfillment, this Bible. And when we think about this Bible, we're thinking of Genesis to Malachi. And while it is a collection of books, and it was written by many different authors, 66 different authors, and it has many stories, a thousand different stories in this book, in actuality, it is one unified story. And what's so amazing about this statement is that this one unified story is unfolding until Jesus arrives. And Jesus says, in this one story, there are expressions of covenants. There are time periods where God has worked with his people in the Old Testament and he developed for himself a people of God. It describes the story of the creator God and his relationship with a rebellious people who run their own way and his desire to bring them back to himself. And so also it shows the law of God. God giving the law to his people, not so that they can obey, but because he's made them his people. He brought them out of Egypt, took them to Mount Sinai and said, I bore you on eagles' wings. You are my people. Therefore, obey this law so we might walk together. You might be my people and I might be your God. This is the heart of this story. And then the prophets show up when the people are going astray and the prophets bring the message of God, come back. Find your love in God's truth and his covenants to you and his relationship with you, his provisions for you. Follow God. He is the one who loves you. He's called you to be his people. And then they kind of go astray. But Jesus shows up at this moment in all of this history and all of this work of God towards his people. Jesus shows up and says, he did not come to abolish these covenants. He did not come to tear down these laws, to reject these prophetic words. No, he came to fulfill. As we might say in our nomenclature, he dropped the mic. He came to fulfill. What more could he do? This is his plan and his purpose. And it is a mischaracterization to think that in some way he set aside, destroyed, or abolished. When we think about the word abolish, it means to dismantle, to destroy. I think of children in the nursery, you know, and the little kids, and they build the building blocks, and they get that big house all stacked up, and the blocks are all there, and then all of a sudden the kid comes along, fram! The kid's like, ah! And all the other kids are crying, and there's a big commotion. That's destroyed. Jesus did not come 
to destroy. What Jesus did was to come and fulfill. That is to take what was prepared, what had a long history, what God had been doing throughout the whole Old Testament and bring it to its culmination. We as believers often make the mistake that Moses is the lawgiver and Christ is the opposite. Christ gives grace. And there's no expectation. We think of Christianity as just kind of like a declaration, kind of uh, an experience, uh, having our ticket punched, being made new, and then it's all just be who we are. But that is such a mischaracterization from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation of what God's plan and purpose is for his people. Somehow we have disconnected God's expectation for our lives and our holiness and our obedience and our longing to be his people and to be a picture of his righteousness and his glory in our lives. We think it's just about getting our ticket picked, you know, having uh, being ready. It's a transaction. We, we get Jesus' righteousness and now we just do our own thing. No, you get Jesus' righteousness to become holy people. To be transformed. To walk in the life that God has always wanted his people to walk in. It's the same call in the Old Testament when God did his miraculous work of deliverance for the people of Israel. Brought them to himself. Made them his people and gave him the the law. It was so that they would stay in that relationship. When God saves you and saves me by the amazing work of Jesus and declares us righteous, it's not so that we can just do our own thing. It's so that we can be his people. And if we make that mistake of thinking that somehow it's just about getting into heaven and becoming Jesus' people without living the life that God has wanted for his people to live, that is a serious blind spot for us. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. Because as we read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, as we hear about the laws and how they should be changing our lives, how we should live according to the laws. And it, and it talks about quite a few things, about lust, about divorce, about anger. I mean, we're going to run into all kinds of expectations, vows, and loving our enemies. And then he's going to go on to religious behavior, how we care for the needy, how we give alms, how we pray. When you think about all of these things, these are all ways in which we live And that means that there is an expectation that we live as Jesus' people. We don't just come to get saved and then wait to go to heaven. We get saved to become people that honor God and bring glory to his name. And reflect the goodness of who he is so that we can be a community of people that shows to the world that God is real. He is alive. He is the light and the life. And you find light and life in him. And we're to demonstrate that. That's what God wanted for his Old Testament people. That's still what he wants for his New Testament people. And Jesus came to make that possible. In a greater way 
than was made possible in the Old Testament. So in some sense, there's more expectation on us. Not that we perform, but God provides everything we need to be new, to be different. And that's what we have to learn to tap into. So where does it come from? I think number two, lesson number two, it comes from we must see fulfillment as completion and extension. In thinking about fulfillment, we can think about an image of a glass, you know, and say, okay, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. So maybe the glass was half full or half empty, however you would use that phrase. Half full or half empty. And now Jesus comes and he fills it up. Well, there's some sense in which that's true. He, he brings it to completion, but it is so much more than that. Others think that fulfill means that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. It means he, he performs the law and the prophets. It means he was absolutely, perfectly obedient to the law. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were obedient to the law, but never were they obedient to the law like Jesus. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. And there's some truth there in that, but it's more than that. Remember when we study a book of the Bible, and we often go through books of the Bible in our preaching, we have the privilege of being able to get familiar with an author and how the author uses certain words. Now when we think about fulfill, let's think about this word, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew likes this word. So six times before the Sermon on the Mount, he's talked about fulfill. There's eight times after the sermon he talks about fulfill. And so what you have here is that Matthew talks about in Matthew 1 and 2 that these things happened to Jesus, the city he was born, the angels and the, the visitors and all of the things that happened in his first days in the first couple of chapters and as as Matthew describes these things sometimes he says and these things took place to fulfill what the prophets had spoken about in chapter 3 verse 15 when Jesus was going to get baptized and he went out to John the Baptist remember John the Baptist said well I'm not really worthy to baptize you and Jesus says go ahead baptize me for in this way it fulfills all righteousness so then in Matthew 5:17, our passage, when he points to fulfilling, it carries the idea of bringing something to completion, to a finishing point, something that has already been started in the beginning, Genesis and Exodus and books of the Old Testament all the way down. Now it is being brought to completion. Jesus is saying that he is the new way forward. He is the path to follow. In knowing him and following him, we come into the fulfillment. This is the most important part of this new way of life. It is the key to understanding this fulfillment. A new way of life that shows a new path and a new direction and a new power. What is this new power? This new power has to do with the new heart. And so we're learning that God is doing something miraculous and new and astounding in Jesus. And Jesus is fulfilling all of the expectations of the Old Testament. And there's a sense in which there is a culmination or a finishing of that Old Testament period. 
In Matthew eleven thirteen, Jesus said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That is, until John the Baptist. And John was the greatest in the Old Testament. But now there is a transition. There is something new. The, the, the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John. There is a transition that's happening here. That the old is being fulfilled and completed and picked up and brought and extended and magnified into the new. So the law is intact. And as he says in this passage, it's interesting, nothing will disappear from the law. Not the smallest stroke or the least uh, mark, or what does he say? Uh, The smallest letter, the yod, not the least stroke of a pen. That's one of those little marks that differentiate certain Hebrew letters from another. It's just that little stroke over. Nothing will disappear from the law till all is accomplished. It's from this passage that we get a strong belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Jesus affirms that this law, these words, are the words of God and they will not be broken. They will not be shaken. Scripture cannot be broken. Therefore, the law remains intact in the Old Testament period and it has ongoing importance and instruction for us and maintains for us as believers an essential component to our understanding of Jesus. But we must admit that there are certain things that have changed. We can think of these areas in four places. Food, sacrifices, priests, and places. Food, for instance, has changed. We eat bacon. I don't know if you like bacon, but I love bacon. and Everything you add bacon to is better. Uh, And we can eat shellfish and other seafood. And this is a change. But when this change is brought about, Jesus points to something very important. Listen to these words in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Are you so dull, he asked, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach, and then out of the body. I say, uh, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Bacon, we could say, is a a benefit of the new covenant. But what I want us to see in the passage of Mark is notice what Jesus says. Jesus is pointing out the importance of the heart. Says that nothing you take from the outside goes into the heart. It only goes into the body and is expelled. What is the essence and the most important thing in this uh, new kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming? The heart. Which is the key for the new covenant. And Jesus is bringing it to reality Another thing that changes, sacrifices have changed. Since shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, sacrifices have ceased. Some might ask, why aren't there animal sacrifices anymore? 
where we would point to Hebrews 9.12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and bulls, goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Therefore, when the sacrifices ceased in the temple at Jerusalem, it was a sign that they were not needed anymore. All sacrifices of the Old Testament have been fulfilled by the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus himself. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. Places have changed. Locations were once very important. You need to go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. And you remember Jesus had a little conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And she was saying, well, you Jews say you worship in Jerusalem. And we say we worship on Mount Gerizim. And and there's a debate. But Jesus said, I want you to know that there is coming a day. And now is when all worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. Spirit and in truth, because God's spirit will reside in believers. And places will not be preeminent anymore. This shows that in the new covenant relationship, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And we meet God wherever we are because he is dwelling within us. So places change. Jesus certainly completes and extends the law and the prophets. And this brings us to lesson number three, the last one. A new day and a new heart has come. This new day is about the new covenant found in Jeremiah chapter 31 through 34, foretelling the work of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And what does it say in that passage? But that God will write his law on our hearts. So in this coming of Jesus and fulfilling God's will and purposes, there is an expectation that we will be the people of God, that we will live out the righteous truths of God, but that we're not going to do it by an external law anymore, but we will do it out of a new creation, a new heart. As Ezekiel says in chapter 36, he'll take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, and he will give us desires and passions and inclinations for what is holy and what is right and what is true. And as we think about all of the commands and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and how to live and how to obey and how to fulfill these these laws, these truths that Jesus holds up and magnifies, we can't do that on our own. We didn't do it in the Old Testament. But what hope is there that we do it as the people of God today? The only hope is the new heart, the new spirit that has been given to us. I love Romans chapter 7, especially verse 6, but 7 and 8 talk about the law and life in the spirit. Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says, But now, by dying in Christ to once what bound us, We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. 
What Jesus is saying here is that the opportunity, the hope, the life that will come from our lives in obedience to God will come because God has given us new energy, new life, a new heart, and written those laws on our heart. And yes, we're not going to be perfect. And yes, we need to change our bodies and we need to walk in ways of righteousness and holiness. But it's not just about willpower and it's not just about knowing what's right and wrong is. It's about God's affections and love for God's glory and God's honor springing up from within our hearts. And that needs to be nurtured and cared for. We need to walk in light of it. We can, we can, like the Old Testament saints, walk away from the truth of God being revealed in our hearts. The encouragement for us as we hear this sermon is this is a high standard, a high call to live in holiness and righteousness, reflecting God's glory. And our only way to do that is to ask for God to reveal himself through us, through the new heart and new life he's given us. The challenge is, are we focused on that? Are we longing for God to show up in our lives and to make us his people? God moves into our lives so that we don't have to obey according to an external rule. But we have to cultivate that deep relationship and that experience of the Holy Spirit. We have to walk in step with him and then his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his love will flow out of us. Springs of living water. That's what we see. One time I went to a movie and they only offered the 3D movie. And I wasn't sure I wanted to go see that. But when I put those glasses on and things were coming on at me, it kind of reminds me of seeing this rightly. It seems so simple. We read over it so many times seems kind of theological, you know. But there's so much depth. There's so much wonder in what Christ fulfills. And that's how he can say in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Is that a call to strap up our boots and to perform better, better than the scribes and Pharisees? They were well known for their obedience and their devotion to the gospel, to the law, excuse me. What Jesus is saying is because you have a new heart, you have a new ability. You can live to the glory of God far more than you ever thought you could if you will nurture your heart, if you will let Christ take over your heart, your passions, your life you will find a power that he will bring to life in you that will transform your life. Jesus is calling us as his people to move towards purity and holiness, to be the pride of Christ. And he's given us the power to do it. A new heart. Let's let the Spirit have his way in us. Let's pray. Lord, you are a gracious God 
who sees us as rebellious people, and you know that we have wandering hearts. But Lord, you have stepped in and you have given us new passions, new directions, new purpose. External laws would never change our lives, but the work of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit would and will. And so, Lord, we pray that we would live in light of who you've made us to be as your people. We pray that we will lean on the Spirit and let the life of Christ flow through us so that we might walk in holiness and truth and beauty and love. Lord, what a high calling this is. But what a glorious journey you've invited us into. Thank you for your love and grace to us. Keep us faithful, walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen.